And welcome to the assembly of God's people as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And certainly we ask you to uh, consider why we are here. Consider what our standard of authority is, and that's Jesus, that's His will. And that's what we're going to teach from today. I'm going to teach from the Old Testament of Daniel. We're going to just really get with it and cover a few chapters. I'm going to do kind of an overview. I want you to keep in mind one central theme. There were two kings. One was Nebuchadnezzar. His grandson, Belshazzar, would take over. And it was not well for either one of these guys. And sometimes the Bible teaches you great examples like Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. That's a great deal. If you can do that and you will do that and you desire to do that, you're going to be a better person. That's a great example. In fact, the Bible speaks about Jesus and his life as a perfect example. He never messed up. We, do, we, do, we can't say that. You might follow a good person, but they mess up. Your mom and dad might be great people, but sometimes they even mess up. You follow Jesus, he never messed up. Sometimes people really messed up. And sometimes God captured those stories and he gave them to us so we could learn from them. In other words, don't make the same mistakes I do. Isn't that, a, isn't that a saying we use? Sure it is. Don't go down the road I've been down. That's what people say. You, you, you don't understand. You have no concept. I've done this, been there, bought the t-shirt and the video. It ain't what you want. Don't follow my example. Don't do what I did. It's a very difficult thing, though. And so that's why you find so many bad examples in the Word of God to try to shake us a little bit and say, this is not the way to go. Well, let's start. In the first uh, chapter of Daniel, the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And of course, he was a mighty guy. He basically sacked the, he sacked the town, sacked the city. He captured a portion of the population, carried them back to Babylon. He segregated a certain portion of the population out. The really bright, good-looking, I mean, these kids were pretty. They were smart. They were the best of the best. And he dedicated them to kind of be liaisons between or to serve in his kingdom. And he had total authority. This guy, when he said jump, you ask, how high? And you're going you're to hear that throughout this, this illustration, this Old Testament story. Well, you're introduced to three young men. One of them's name is Daniel. And Daniel is obviously the namesake of this book, this prophet of old. He had three people with him that also gained some notoriety. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One time Johnny Elmore was preaching this sermon and he forgot Abednego's name and he said Shadrach, Meshach, and Ramshach. You'll never forget that name, and I don't see it on many name rolls in hospitals, Abednego, which is probably not there. But these, three, these four young men were special, and they were special because God was number one. And it reflected in their lives in very difficult circumstances, and don't lose some major themes throughout this. When you live for God, it may get bad, it may be difficult, it may be a very hot fire, hint, hint, but you're going to make it out if God is with you and you're with God, more importantly. And so for a little while, I want to talk about being weighed in the balance. That's the title of this. We're headed toward that theme. Before we go further, we have a great privilege to pray. Please humble yourself while we do that. 
What we have going on right now is basically Jerusalem has been sacked and everything is in disarray. It's a bad deal for the Jews. It's a bad deal for these guys who were made eunuchs by this king. These four guys specifically are name by name, but there were more. And right off the bat, things began to uh, get a little dicey for them because whenever God was number one, and He was number one in their life, when He was number one, it changed everything else. It changed everything else. In other words, what, what happens to most people is, if you put me right here, and you put this big ball, and you call that the world, what generally happens to most of us is, the world influences me, and I begin to kind of do things the way the world does. However, when God is number one, and He is influencing me, guess what? That's reversed. Everything I think about the world, and everything I do with regard to the world, is altered, and that happened very quickly. You see, they had meats and they had wine and there were some of these young men that had never tasted such and they would not eat it. Even though that was considered delicacies, in fact the New King James calls it such, delicacies, they were offered meat and wine. Now I presume, based off chapter 3, that this was uh, meat uh, sacrificed to idols and probably unclean animals at that and they weren't having any part of it. And so Daniel comes to the captain of the guard and he says, or the chief of the eunuchs, I should say, and says, Hey, why don't you let us eat something else? And you ask yourself, why is that? Why did he not want meat and wine? The Bible says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Do you have that purpose in your heart? I want to tell you something. You don't have to watch too many shows of intervention are too many shows about being addicted to know that the Bible, the good book, when it says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and those who partake therein are not wise is absolutely true. But it was more than that even. They had an allegiance to God that would not allow them to defile themselves with the very thing that the world was trying to influence them with. And so it was not a compromise. We love that word, I'm going to compromise. It wasn't a compromise per se. Daniel said, this isn't what we're going to eat. Why don't you let us eat pulse and water, as the old King James says. You know what pulse is? Smith's Bible Dictionary defines it as peas and beans. The New King James just says vegetables, but peas and beans capture something for me. Now, I like black-eyed peas, and I like several kinds of peas. I hate English peas, and if you brought them today, don't tell me. I'm not going to eat them. If you look at my plate, I'm not going to have them on my plate. My mother cooked them, and I took them like pills. Literally, put them in my mouth and swaddled them down. I hate English peas. And in my mind, Daniel's asking for this bland concoction that doesn't taste good and that's the level of his dedication because God was number one and you know what the chief of the eunuchs said I don't know about that I want to make a point here the Bible says God brought Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego brought him in favor with the chief of the eunuchs we believe in providence we believe in God working things out behind the scenes he is all-powerful. He is the great I am, and I'm not going to limit him. But that's what it's called. It's called providence. In other words, you can't see it and touch it, and you'll never be able to know it. You just try to try to lift the curtain on that when people try to say, God did this or God did that. 
But never forget this, when you start thinking that you're great and that you're doing great on your job and everybody likes you and you're succeeding, thank God for that. Well, the Bible says God brought Daniel into basically a place of prominence with this chief of the eunuchs. And so he had a conversation with him and he said, let me drink Paulson water. The guy said, the king's going to have my head if you get sick, if you look weak and pale. And Daniel said, try it for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, you judge us and see what we look like. And so that's what they did. 10 days later, what do you think happened? The Bible says they were fatter in flesh than all the rest of them. Now, that's not what our American culture would like as a compliment, but that's what the Bible said was a compliment. They were fatter in flesh. They looked good. They looked better than all the rest that were eating meat and wine. And I'll say this, I guarantee you there were some Jews that came along and were just fine going along eating the meat and the wine that the king offered them. And God truly was not number one in their life. Even though they were to know God because they were children of Abraham. So it was that after this, this period of time of training, of learning the tongue and the literature of the Chaldeans, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel came before King Nebuchadnezzar and the Bible says he found them ten times more wise than all of the magicians and astrologers and soothsayers and wise men that were in the kingdom. They were on top of their game. They were literally the best. Nebuchadnezzar marveled. Well, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it wasn't just any dream, it was a dream that made his sleep leave him. You ever woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and sit straight up in the bed because literally you've got somebody chasing you with a knife and right before they put it in your back you wake up? Just glad to wake up, aren't you? Well, he had one of those dreams. And his sleep left him. And so he called the wise men as soothsayers and astrologers and he said, you tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation of it. And they're like, that's not how it works. <laughs> you tell us what you dream, and, and we'll tell you what it means. And it made Nebuchadnezzar mad. Have you ever been lied to or felt like somebody was just, oh, all the time, sugar won't melt, they're just, you couldn't, just melt and pour them on you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had one of those moments. And he finally looked and saw these flatterers, these people that tried to bend everything to please him. <clears throat> and there are some times in your life, I want to tell you something, there are some times in your life you want people to talk to you straight, look you in the eye, and tell you exactly how it is. Nebuchadnezzar had one of those moments. And those guys were not the guys to do it. And they said, we can't do it. In fact, what you're requiring, no king requires of any wise men. Nebuchadnezzar said, you better figure it out. You better tell me or I'm going to kill you. And they said, only one of the gods in their mind, remember they're polytheistic, they're idol worshipers in Babylon, only one of those whose dwelling is not with flesh can let you know. And it made Nebuchadnezzar so mad he sent out a decree. And uh, that decree was, kill them all. So they came for Daniel. He was in the crowd. Now I want you to imagine. Here they come. Arioch, the captain of the guard, comes along. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He'd be the equivalent today of somebody pulling a gun on a crowd. And everybody goes, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. 
No, what, what's going on here? And Arioch explained it to him. And Daniel said, let me go talk to the king. So he goes in and talks to the king and begs, give me, give me, give me some time. And I want to say something to you about what Daniel did next. If you've ever had bad things go on in your life, if you've ever worried about something, if you've ever been anxiety and had all kinds of pressure on you, if you're upset about something, if things aren't going your way, I hope we all do what they did. Daniel comes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he tells them, you pray and you seek mercies from God. And when you're going through stuff, you call your brother and your sister in Christ and you ask them to pray for you. That's God's arrangement. That's why he, part of why he put us in this group called the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that no matter our background and circumstances, we can ask help and prayer on behalf of each other. And guess what? God did deliver the dream and the vision or the interpretation of that dream that night to Daniel. And if you read that one of the most beautiful Beautiful blessings toward God you'll ever read in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. So Daniel comes back. He steps before the king and he says something that I think is huge. He said, I did not get this dream because I'm so wise and so smart. I like that. He already has my, my heart and mind now. He's already chosen God. He's dedicated himself to eat English peas. Now... He's dedicated himself that he's not an arrogant, proud guy that has to get all the accolades. He's not the Savior here. And so he tells the king, it is the great God of heaven. There is a God in heaven. And I want to tell you, God's arrangement has always been this. If there is error in the room, God will generally straighten out the error and point out the truth. He always has. And so that's what Daniel did. He goes and says, have you found truth in all the wise men and soothsayers and astrologers? There's no truth there. There's truth in God. He gives it to me. No man does that. No man. And if you're looking for truth in some man or you're looking for truth in your own thoughts and creative imagination, you're looking for truth in the wrong place. The great revealer of truth gave us truth. In the very person and image of Jesus Christ and by the revelation that followed, he said, the truth will set you free. How huge is that? How wonderful is that? Well, they came before King Nebuchadnezzar. They began to tell him this great interpretation. It's a head of gold. It's a chest and arms of silver. It's uh, 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 thighs of, of, of iron and, and bronze and feet partly mixed with clay and iron. He gave the great prophecy of the church in Daniel 2 and verse 44. In the days of these kings, God will establish a kingdom that will never pass away. Jesus came on the scene and said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It'll never go out of existence. And we're in 2010 and Satan is tried. Here it is because we have the very source of what it means to be in the kingdom and who we are in the kingdom. At the end of Daniel chapter 2, after Nebuchadnezzar was convicted that it truly was the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar confessed that God truly is a God of gods. He's not a God with a little g, as we often say. He's a God with a big g. He is the God, the only God, the sovereign ruler and creator of the universe. And guess what he did? He made a decree. He, made it, he would make many decrees about God, but he made a decree. 
about God. The Bible says this. I want to say this. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. The Bible says the king promoted Daniel. He promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel literally ruled at the gate. And so we go to chapter 3. He is still a polytheistic God, a polytheistic king. He's worshiping idols still. Now you, you ask yourself, how is that? How is it that nobody else could reveal this dream and Daniel proclaims who it was that revealed the dream? It wasn't him by his own profession and confession. It's the God of heaven. He confesses the God of heaven and he goes right ahead and lives his life and does what he always did. And that's what we preach to today many times. You can have a crowd full of people. You can preach to literally hundreds of people that need to know Jesus, that have never been forgiven of their sins, never been baptized into Christ, and people can hear it and say, yeah, that's right, but I'm going to go on and do my own thing. I don't get it. Well, Daniel chapter 3 is one of those I don't get it moments. This guy builds a golden statue, puts it out in the plain of Dura, has all of his band and orchestra show up and says, if you don't bow down to this idol that I've made, you're going to be put in a, in a fiery furnace. You're going to die. So what do you do? Well, you all get together out there, the band plays, and everybody bows down. And I just love this part. Y'all remember how Linwood used to hold his coat together like this? He held it together like that and preached a whole lot. He would hold his lapels in just like that. Sometimes he would even pull on them. As a little boy, I always watched the nuances of preachers, what I did all my life. Well, I imagine in my mind, these guys stand that day as that music played, and they stood there and perhaps they pulled on their coats and looked around and just shook their head in disgust. Because what they saw were people that did not understand the true nature of God, and they were now making an idol that was made with hands. If I tell you, this is the equivalent of what an idol is, just so you know. This is how foolish and crazy it is. People will fashion something like this and say, this has religious significance. This is what you're going to worship now. This flower pot right here is what's going to save you and what's going to guide you and what's going to lead you. Look at that flower pot. Look how beautiful it is. It's what's going to save you. And people say it over and over again until nobody asks any questions about, how's a flower pot save you? These guys were trained, and their mamas whispered in their ears, and they taught them all their life what happened on Mount Sinai. When God gave one of the commandments, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children, of the fathers, unto the children, unto the third and fourth generations. God doesn't play, and if we don't reverence Him in our hearts, if He is not number one, He's not okay with that. And you say, well, that seems a little selfish. No, it's not. I've explained this before. When God is number one in my heart, in my mind, guess who benefits the most? The world around me. If you've got your relationship with God and He's number one, other people benefit from you. Don't accuse God of selfishness whenever we create something. We come up with a religion and we create how we're going to worship and th ex expect God to say, well, it's all right. 
Well, all the king's tattletales come back and tell the king, hey, you know those Hebrew children? They didn't do what you said. And so he calls them before him and he gives them another shot. He says, is it true? They said, it's true. He said, I'm going to give you one more chance. One more chance and then you're dead. You know what they said? I love this. I love this. He tells them, you're going to die in a flaming fire. I love this. He says to them, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of this flame, but I'm paraphrasing, but if he chooses not to, we will still serve him. Kill our bodies if you want to. Our God controls our soul, our eternal existence. And I love that. Listen, when you pray, God may deliver you out of a flame. You may get out of a circumstance. You may come out of a physical handicap. You may have things, bad things happen to you. And we pray earnestly, and you may actually get out of that. But you may not, too. And either which way you go, don't try somehow to adopt any other philosophy than the way these great men did. We're going to serve God and we're going to serve Him, whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether it's ugly. And it made the king so mad. Have you ever seen people like get stark raving mad? I mean, they're frothing at the mouth. Those lips start quivering, they get sweat rolling down, veins split off, red, purple. I've seen people change all kinds of colors before. And they get loud. The Bible says his visage changed, means all of that happened at one time. This guy's so angry, he says, heat up the furnace seven times hotter than it should have been. In other words, full blast. And the mighty men of the army that threw him in, threw them in tied up, in trousers and linens, tied them up for all they were worth. And the flame was so hot when they threw them in, it consumed the men of the army that threw them in. And Nebuchadnezzar thought, well, I've just crushed a small rebellion. Let me tell you something. You may feel like you've been put in the middle of flame, uh, flames at school or at work or in your situation with your family. But if God is with you, what other people think is horrible, God will make bearable even death. The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar looked into the mouth of that furnace and what he saw shocked him to his core. Nebuchadnezzar said, did we not throw three men tied up in this flame? And they said, we did. He said, why is there four and the fourth is likened unto the Son of God? They're loose and they're walking. Now I want you to listen to what this king, this idolatrous king that was so mad a minute ago, so angry with God's children, now listen to what he says. He comes up to the mouth of that furnace and you can imagine the heat from that flame and he screams and says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. And they came out of that flame. Now, let me tell you something about how God works. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar made a decree concerning God Almighty that if anyone spoke a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their families would be cut off. They would become like a dunghill, literally refuge. They would be absolutely waste. And he sent that decree to all of Babylon. In other words, 
the message that there is an almighty God ruling the universe was sent to all the known world. Babylon was in control. God revealed himself to the known world by the decree of a polytheistic king that had an encounter with almighty God. Chapter 4 opens and Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This dream is basically going to ruin him. Daniel pleads with him to change his life and repent and humble himself. He basically, when Daniel tells him his kingdom's going to leave him, this guy walks around for a year and pouts. You know anybody that pouts? This guy pouted. He walks around and he's kind of downcast and he's walking around and finally one day and just gets mad about it and says, didn't I create this kingdom with my own two hands? The Bible says that very moment a voice came from heaven and said, O king, to thee it is spoken, thy kingdom is departed thee. And he went out and literally was made like a wild animal. At the end of his life, God allowed him some, in some sanity to come back from his insanity. And the Bible says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. If you're a proud person, get ready. Chapter 5 opens in Belshazzar now has a big party for a thousand of his lords and it's not a party like we know. Our parties will last from like 5 to 10 or maybe some, some people get there at 8 and it goes all night but you just don't have parties like that anymore. These went on for days and weeks and months. And I guess things kind of get boring. What I didn't tell you is that in the very beginning, when Nebuchadnezzar went and sacked Jerusalem, they took certain articles and vessels, cups and what have you, uh, from the temple and carried it back to Babylon and put it in the house of their false god. And so when things got boring, Belshazzar says, go find something to spice it up. And that's what they did. They go and they get these things that belong to God. That's a big point. They come back and they fill them with wine. And they begin to praise the false gods of gold and silver and stone and wood. And the Bible says there was a part of a hand. And it was writing on the wall in the chamber. And when Belshazzar saw it, he thought he had seen a ghost. You ever think you've seen a ghost before? I'm going to tell you, a stump when you're riding your bicycle home at about 7 o'clock at night in Arkansas will make it look like a bear and you could ride really fast. Well, this guy thought he had seen a ghost and worse, he could not understand the writing. And he's so afraid, he starts shaking in his boots. The Bible says his loins were loosed. And his knees are literally sitting there shaking. I was sparking rocks on a highway in Gailey, Oklahoma one time. One of those when you, basically means you throw a good white rock down hard enough, it'll spark. Funny thing is, though, if you hit a car's windshield, they tend to stop and come back and have a problem with it. I ran to the back of the church house and told my brother, Kip, Kip, i got to sit down because my knees literally were doing this. I knew what was coming. There was a language on the wall that was just unbelievable. And so everybody tries to help him calm down. He can't calm down. You want to know why? Because they can't read it. The queen finally comes down and she says, there's a man who can tell you what this writing is. It was Daniel. So they usher Daniel back in. Daniel comes in the room. 
and he preaches this proud, arrogant king a sermon. He recounts the life of kings before him, and he recounts his own life, and he said, basically, you've walked in pride. The very God who holds your breath in his hands is the one you've slighted, and you've praised the idols. And God's not happy. And he went on to tell him about the writing on the wall. And the main gist of that writing is very simple. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Let me tell you something today. You may be scared of a police officer. You may be scared of somebody. You may be scared of a man with a gun. You may be afraid of a lot of things. Jesus said, Fear not him which is able to destroy the body and not able to destroy the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the one we should fear. And if you're living a life, if you're living a life worshiping idols and doing your own thing and doing whatever in the world you want and maybe even worshiping yourself, let me tell you, you're weighed and found wanting. God's not happy and he's only giving you time to get it straight. Why did Nebuchadnezzar and why did Belshazzar fail? Why did they fail? One of the great reasons they failed was because of pride. They failed because of pride. When I think about that, I think about it perhaps as one of the worst traits of humanity. It's a heart disease. You know what heart disease is? If you're in your 50s or 60s, you've had a doctor warn you about that. Heart disease. Pride is heart disease. Pride is defined as an undue high opinion of oneself. An undue high opinion of oneself. Doesn't mean you can't have self-love. Jesus said love others as you love yourself. But it does mean you can't be an arrogant, proud person because God even hates a proud look in Proverbs 6. He hates it. In 1 John 2, John said in verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. What do you love today? Who do you love today? Who's number one? Who is number one? In Proverbs 16 and 18, discussing pride, the, the wise men said, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Have you ever met... Um, have you ever met people who had all the answers? Oh, you can't tell them anything. You can't teach them anything. I mean, they've got it figured out, and it's almost an insult that you would ever try to teach them or show them any which way. It doesn't matter if they're dead wrong. I mean dead wrong. If you could see through a ladder, you ought to be able to see you're wrong. But at the end of it, no, I'm not wrong. What is that? That's pride. That's pride. That's something we all have to deal with. Because our world is certainly influencing us. In Mark 7, 22, Jesus said thefts, now get this, a thief, a covetous person, a person who is greedy or, or lusts for money, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, that means to excite lust, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile the man. Do you know what they tell politicians? They tell them to have a certain image. 
You ever meet too many humble politicians? What is the next election cycle going to be? I, I declare sometimes we don't have election cycles. We're just always in one. But you have to hear some guy come on there and tell you, I've done this and I've done that and I've done the other and some, you know, some geek named Anderson Cooper or whoever else it is gets on there and say, no, he did not do this. I'll tell you what he did. And bottom line, people stretch, they exaggerate, they'll tell you they started the internet, they were there for it, you name it, because they really want to be something. Pride causes people to do that. And when you address it with them, oh, well, you're taking that out of context. That is arrogance and pride. And we can see it in somebody else so easily, but when we look in the mirror, we don't like to see it in ourselves. People who can't say, I'm sorry. That's a problem. Pride, pride will make people think when they're really not. Make people think they're right when they're not. Pride will make congregations look at themselves with the attitude of we are perfect when much work needs to be done. Pride does that. Pride will make people go for numbers and not for truth. It makes people more apt to go to churches where the more socially elite are present rather than having the living God of heaven present. And I want to say this, pride will make us take up for our family before we stand for truth. That's a big deal. If you've never been tested by this principle, you will. I'll give you an illustration to, to sort it out for yourself. My dad is a school bus driver. My dad's a disciplinarian. Uh, the, the, the sound of a belt loop coming out, and then that, that's a very powerful sound in my mental vocabulary of sounds because that meant a belt was on its way. Cedar limbs make the best switches. I'm telling you, my dad was all about discipline for us, and I, I, I earned all I got. I needed it. I'll tell you this, my dad's belt saved me from going to hell. I'm not ashamed to say that. But I will say this. He, he didn't whip other kids. That's a good thing. Probably would be in jail now, if so. But uh, he drove a school bus, and dad tends to have eyes in the back of his head. He would always wear shades, and he, would, he was always famous for looking up when the kids thought, well, he's looking forward. He was good at that. And he would catch him doing something. And there was a kid one day that literally reached somewhere down in Florida and came up and just slobber knocked this kid. I mean, hit him hard. And dad wrote him up, went through the process, sent the notice home. The kid was going to be kicked off the bus for three days. Big deal. That's a big deal. Well, he gets a phone call from a mama. And the daddy's on the other line listening in. And she says, Mr. Smith, this is so-and-so's mom. Yes, ma'am, how can I help you? Well, I want to talk to you about this write-up. And he said, well, ma'am, I was watching him in my rearview mirror, and he leaned over the seat and, and hit another child. And she said, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. And Dad said, yes, ma'am, he did. And she said, Mr. Smith, Joe Heisel calls this posturing, Mr. Smith my son doesn't lie. Let me tell you about some property that every kid will protect. It's called their backside. And if they can keep their backside from getting in trouble, they'll protect that property. It's more valuable than the California real estate market on the bubble. And so dad said, well, I'll tell you what, I've got a camera on my bus. Why don't you show up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? We'll watch it together. 
He said she came in, she was in a huff, her husband was tailing in tow. They sat down in the chair, the bus garage superintendent pushed play, and not only did he hit one kid, he hit several that dad didn't catch. And then, only then did the walls of pride fall in and you see the mother go, wait till we get home. That illustrates a very important principle. If I mess up, or if you mess up, I tell you, the people that are best equipped to correct me are in my family. And if they don't do it, God help the world around me. God put us in a spiritual family. A lot of times we go to church and we have family members in our midst. That's a great thing. But it also... It also is one of those deals, isn't it? It's a trade-off deal. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If my brothers, whom I love dearly, get up and preach something that's not found in the Word of God, they're not okay and they're not right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I love my dad and my dad loves me. But the relationship we have in Christ is about the blood that Jesus, that we share in Christ. And it's not about me, and it's not about my dad, and it's not about my family members. It's about the truth, and it's about what's right. Just because I want, for example, if my brother hears me preach something that's not right, and he says, well, I don't really think it was that bad, does that make it okay? Let me tell you the strain that puts on a congregation. The greatest thing that can ever have is for family to say, what my son is doing, what my brother is doing is not okay. It's not okay. And I want you to help me to try to fix it. But that's never what happens. Because our world gets in our head and we develop this family pride that we're worried about what someone might think about our family. Let me tell you something. It matters more about what the God of heaven thinks about my family than it does what anybody else thinks about my family. And that is a great principle for illustrating how pride has to go. It has to go. And let me say this. If I'm wrong, if you ever hear of me preaching something that is not in the Word of God, added to the Word of God, or taken away from the Word of God, you come talk to me and I'll tell you why. Jesus said, if any man add to the words of the prophecy of this book, I will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man take away out of the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. It is a huge principle. Listen, I want you to care enough about my soul to come talk to me if I'm not living right. I beg you. I plead with you. And I want you to reciprocate that. I want you to give me the right, the ability to have a conversation if we go out somewhere, off somewhere, either left or right. There is a straight and narrow way. There is a way to walk in light. And we all need to help each other walk it. We walk hand in hand and arm in arm, not fisticuffs. And we do it in the truth. And pride will forever not allow that to happen. Tearing down the walls of pride will certainly allow that to happen. i got to hurry on. And I'll say this. Peter said, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Or rather, the Hebrew writer said that. Peter said, Be clothed with humility. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said, Those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Two things I want to cover. Two things. Really three. 
The first one is, I want you always to remember that there are things that belong to God. Nebuchadnezzar stole things that belonged to God. Belshazzar used them, filled them with wine, and worshipped idols with them. And God was upset about it. The object of God's affection is you today, but there are other things that he cares about. He cares about this day, the Lord's day. Paul tarried in Acts 20 and 7 to worship with brethren. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the Bible says, We provoke one another unto love and good works, and we do not forsake this assembly. There may be things that come up in your life, but I assure you, if you understand the context of Hebrews 10, you understand this. They were under persecution, and they were under fear of death. And if it wasn't okay to forsake the assembly then, it dead sure isn't now, when all we have to do is set our alarm and get in our cars and show up. And there's anybody here that'll give us a ride, and anybody here that'll come get us, and you name it, it'll happen. Did you know this day belongs to Jesus? Yet we, we do our very best to cheapen it all we can many times in our world today. It used to be where there were a set of blue laws in place. Nothing was open on Sunday. You remember those days? Many of you do. Now everything is open on Sunday. And that's a sad thing. Everything is open on churches except fewer and fewer churches are open for business today in the United States of America and every year more and more close. Why is that? Because the world... The world does its very best to take us away from remembering this day that God owns. In the Old Testament, you didn't miss, you didn't miss this day. Do you know that? <laughs> I'm thankful we don't live under the old law. Because if you messed up with, on the Sabbath day, they would take you out to the edge of the city and beat your brain in with rocks. And you want to talk about cruel, that's rough. I'm glad we don't have that today. I really am. But I'll tell you, it's still the Lord's day. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. This do. I tell a story many times, and I'm going to tell it today. The story is told of a couple that were at home one Sunday morning listening to the news as on their way to church, and they heard about a place somewhere in the back hills of a particular part of India that had a, some strange thing that was going on. Some people died. That night on the news, 30 or 40,000 people were found dead, and it was the main story come Monday morning. People did not understand what was going on. The symptoms were simple. Once you contracted the virus, in 24 hours you had unbelievable symptoms and literally just killed over. It was a fast-acting virus. They sent people over there from the disease control center in Atlanta. It was all over the news. People were literally putting plastic over their windows, buying masks, calling it a scourge from God. They were upset. People were crying. Everyone, the President of the United States is asking for prayer and people start literally shutting down countries. It was in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran. The president of France makes the shocking announcement that all flights in and out of Europe will be canceled. That night, Monday evening, your jaw drops as a weeping woman is translated from French into English. She says this virus has come. There's a man in a hospital in Paris dying of what they have termed the mystery flu. Tuesday comes, no word yet. No one has found it, and yet there are literally now millions of people that lie dead. No one will even go and attend to the dead for fear of contracting the disease. Scientists are working around the clock, and finally, word comes. Word comes. They have found, they have found a cure. They want everyone to be tested to make sure that no strain of the virus is present. So that all over the Midwest, all over the Midwest, they set up loudspeakers in parking lots. The day that everyone's being tested, word comes. It's hit. Long Island and Boston were hit first. The major hubs of the United States are now hit. 
people are literally dropping like flies and you're in a hospital parking lot with your family as people are leading prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer. And doctors come running out and grab the megaphone and they shout out a name. And your little boy tugs at your shirt and says, Daddy, that's my name. And before you know it, they have whisked him away behind plastic and behind barriers. It's the first time anyone has smiled in a week and an old gray-haired doctor comes out the door and literally embraces you and your wife and says, thank you, thank you so much. They bring you inside. You begin to sign some consent forms. And before you know it, you notice there's a blank spot empty about the number of pints. And you ask the obvious question, how much blood, how much are you going to need? And that's when all the smiles fade and the doctor sets you and your wife down and says, I had no idea it was such a small child. I've got to have all of it. Every ounce. You go in and you try to explain that you would never allow anything to happen to your precious child that didn't absolutely have to. And you walk out of the room as literally a barrier separates you. And he's plaintively calling, why are you leaving me? The next week, after everyone has literally had injections and people are picking up the pieces, they have a day of remembrance and they remember your child, your son. And you're sitting off with the family and you get up to go and look at this, uh, what you hoped would be a vast audience of people that are there to pay their respects. And you notice that tons of people are missing. Wouldn't you want to get up out of your seat and literally scream to the world, My son died for you! Do you not get it? Do you not care? Do you really understand it? I want you to meet me at the back door sometime and share with me a good example of how in the world we could ever give an excuse to Almighty God when He made no excuses and offered His Son. This day belongs to Him. And I don't care where you go in life, and I don't care how busy your life gets. If you don't get this, you're not getting very much. This is big. And I beg you, always remember it. The second thing I'll tell you that belongs to God is you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ bought you. He said, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is a rental unit. I don't know how familiar you are with rental cars, but most people get paranoid and buy insurance on rental cars in case you mess it up. You're going to turn that rental car back in one day, and it's your body. And you're going to be given account for the things you've done in your body. Paul pleaded with the Corinthian church about this very principle, and I'm pleading with you today. If you call yourself a Christian, if you are a Christian, please recognize this blood that we are going to remember this morning, the communion of the blood of Christ, this blood bought you. It bought you out of slavery. It bought you out of literally a place you couldn't get out of by yourself and a place that ultimately would destroy you eternally. That's how precious this is. And that's how precious you are to God. Don't ever think somebody doesn't care about you. 
2,000 years ago, God shed the, son, the blood of His Son and screamed to the world, You are important. And we sometimes look at religion in the Bible and the church and we say, That's not that big of a deal. Blood was shed. This is a big deal. The church is not a building. The church is people. Jesus shed His blood to die and died for us, the church. He died for everyone. I want to say this to every young person that's here today. There are groups of people today that have literally changed the concept that God wanted. Two things I want to say about being weighed in the balance. Two things. The first thing that I think often needs to be preached is that we have to obey our parents. You'll be weighed in the balance and found wanted if you don't obey your parents. We live in a world of Bart Simpson where Homer's an idiot. We live in a world of where everybody that's a man and a father is just stupid. And I know that's not a word you probably want to hear the preacher say. You probably not let your kids say that. But get the point very clearly. God ordained a man and a woman to live together in marriage. And whenever children are present, they give their very best to those children. They're not perfect. Parents are not perfect. But as children, we have a responsibility to obey our parents. And one of the great reasons behind that is, if we don't learn to obey our parents, how in the world are we going to obey God who is our Father? Our parents we can see, and if we don't love and respect and honor them, how on earth are we going to love and respect and honor God who we don't see? Paul said it like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, Ephesians 6 and 1. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. I want to ask you this. On a scale of 1 to 10, do you honor and respect and obey your parents in what they try to teach you spiritually? Do you respect them when they say you need to be home at a certain hour? Do you roll your eyes at them when they say you need to turn that off or turn the channel or we don't watch that? Do you honor your parents when they ask you to grow and try to help you grow spiritually, which is the greatest thing they could ever observe going on in life. Lots of you have great skill and talent. Lots of you have great ability. But ultimately, the greatest goal of every Christian parent is to make a child of God out of their child. And you're not a child of God just because your parents are children of God. You're a child of God because you want to be a child of God. So many people treat their parents like dirt today and think it's okay. So many people sass their parents and talk back and argue and literally just drill their parents. Let me tell you something, young lady, young man, little, old, I don't care. You may have a disagreement with your mom and dad. The Bible teaches us in the church to entreat older men and older women as mothers and fathers. Our, in other words, as a young person, I'm not going to go just tear into some older person. God governed anything I say to anyone that's older by saying, treat older women like a mother, treat older men like fathers. In other words, respect, honor, revere. 
God did not put children in charge of raising parents. He put parents in charge of raising children. And so we have a responsibility. This is God-ordained. This is not fun. This is not just something I'm saying. And he put parents in charge of saying, we want to please God and we're going to please God and putting spiritual things first. And it gets really dicey sometimes when parents don't put spiritual things first and it's hard for the kids to live the Christian life because mom and dad aren't living the Christian life. And I want to give you, if you've got that going on, if you're a young person and you've got that going on, I feel for you and I pray for you, but I want to tell you something. You obey your parents in everything right up until your parents ask you to do something that is contrary to the will of God. I heard a story one time about a young man who had it out with his, with, with his father. His whole life he was rebellious. His whole life he had disdain. His whole life he would look at him and roll his eyes. His whole life just nasty to his mom and dad. And he had a birthday coming up. He wanted a new rifle. That rifle cost several hundred dollars. They had five kids. And they didn't really have the money. They were farming people. They were not high rollers or anything like that. And so his parents said, we'll see, we'll see. And he just almost was indignant demanding it. On the day of his, it was his 18th birthday. He comes in. He gets up early that morning, races down. He has a host of presents from his little brothers and sisters. Lots of them. They were all smiling. Everybody saying happy birthday. He ripped through them all without care or concern for any of it. Looking for that, that rifle he wanted so badly. His dad walked in the room and laid down a simple box on the table. He lifted the cover off that box and inside was a beautiful, beautiful, genuine leather-bound Bible. The boy took it the wrong way, ran upstairs, threw it on the shelf, grabbed a few of his things, ran down the stairs, popped the screen door, and was in his mind forever gone. Three months later, he got a phone call from his mother. His father had been killed in a horrible, horrible farming accident. And he was called home for the funeral. Things were different now. He went through the service and his mama begged him to come back home and be with the family and help him get through it, and so he agreed. He walked in the door, nobody saying anything to anyone. He walked up to his old room and he walked inside only to find that it had been kept exactly as he had left it. Not one thing turned. The Bible was still on the shelf where he had thrown it. And things were different now. He picked it up and began to thumb through it. And an envelope fell out with his name on it. His dad, in the sweetest way possible, said, Son, I've always tried to be a good dad. I've always tried to do what was right. Here's the money for your rifle. But please, let's have a good relationship. Let's act like a family. Hot crocodile tears st st literally stained his face. There was nothing to take it away. One day there's going to be a doctor that bends his stethoscope around his neck with your precious mama and your precious daddy and shakes his head and says, 
He's gone. She's gone. And I promise you, I promise you, it will matter what kind of relationship you have with them. I promise you. The last thing I'll say about being weighed in the balance is if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Jesus died and shed his blood to redeem us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Hebrews 10, 26 says, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, if you're trying to find a new way to get to God and be in God's good graces, then you can look forevermore. You'll never find it. Jesus is the only way. He's it. That hand was writing a message on the wall. If a hand was writing on the wall of your heart right now, would it be writing the wonderful, the wonderful word saved? He's saved. Is that what it would be? I hope so. If you confess the sweet name of Jesus based on your faith, you've been immersed in water for the remission of your sins, you've committed to change your life, you've been added to the Lord's church, you are saved. The Lord added to the church daily such as we're being saved. And I know that those on the day of Pentecost certainly had faith. I know Peter told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And the Bible says, Then they that gladly, rece then they that gladly received their word were baptized, and that same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The them was the church, and the church is saved. Great. But I know it's impossible to have an audience this big without somebody recognizing that there was a writing on their heart the most horrible words in all the Bible. Lost. Lost. If you're lost today, there's no words of comfort I can give you. There's no hope I can give you. I, I can't make you feel better. I can't make you happy. I can't inspire you. I can't motivate you. I can't help you. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Why don't you let him? Why don't you turn loose of whatever it is about your life that you've been living? Turn loose of it and come and confess the sweet name of Jesus and be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins. Why, I beg you. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.